uh, Pharisees did, this traditional hand washing to avoid uh, contamination from the Gentiles. And Jesus deals with that in a couple of ways. As Jesus always does, he goes deeper than just answering the question. He really probes the principles involved in the, mis the, the disagreement between them. One of the principles was they were following man's rules, man's traditions, over what God's commands were. And he points out that that's not just a matter of they were doing some unnecessary things, that this attitude they have of accepting man's rules as divine caused them to actually disobey things God says, like to honor their father and mother because of this Corban tradition they had. And the disciples pointed out that the Pharisees were offended by this statement. But Jesus, instead of uh, lessening the offense, says, well, if my heavenly father didn't plant the plant, the doctrine, the religion, the church, whatever, it'll be uprooted. And uh, clearly he means the Pharisees among those that uh, have not been planted by God. And then he said, let them alone, you know, stay away from them because they're blind guides of the blind, which is a very hopeless uh, picture and disastrous not only to the blind guides but also to the blind followers so stay away from those guys so jesus didn't mind offending these religious leaders we are sometimes too squeamish about the fact that somebody might not like something and in this case might not like us loosening a rule that they think is important you know we think of jesus as always being more conservative well, Jesus wasn't always more conservative. He was always, always more concerned with the will of God. You know, he was always passionate for that. But sometimes he broke rules and regulations that they believed in because he saw that they were just for men. And he, he just focused on what God's were. But he also, starting in verse 15, deals with another angle on this whole issue of the hand washing. Here's another, you know, problem with their view. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Remember I said that uh, Peter comes in for special mention in each of these chapters. Here's his mention in chapter 15. Jesus said in verse 16, are you still lacking understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So what does Jesus see as the thing that really defiles us? The heart. Absolutely. It's the things that we do. It's not the things we take into our body. You know, the foods we eat don't defile us. They were focused on the wrong thing. They were scrupulous about these irrelevant details. Did you wash your hands before you ate? But totally not focused on the vital matters, the sins that come out of the heart. It's not what happens to us that's the problem. It's the choices we make and the decisions we make that start from our heart, that's what defiles us. And, and so they, they're all worried about, oh, did a, did a Gentile maybe touch us? Did we, did we, you know, or whatever. And Jesus is saying, that's not the issue. The issue is the things that, that you do because of your heart. 
Thoughts and comments on that? I wonder if we do the same thing sometimes, if we get some superstitious ideas and attitudes and start worrying about the wrong things. You know, oh, did, did, I, did this happen? Did that happen? When, when really, there's terrible things going in on, our, on in our heart and we're not seeing them. I think this is a typical um, pattern for religious people. Religious people often end up majoring in human rules and in external things, not in the truly significant matters. All right, anything you want to say through verse 20? Well then, 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there, withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting after us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. All right. Now, Jesus is withdrawing into the district of Tyre and Sidon, which would be what kind of a district? Gentile. Gentile. I believe this is probably an effort on Jesus' part to get some peace and quiet with the Twelve so he can teach them and train them and have a little less... Um, you know, pressure from the crowds. But, even up there, here's a Canaanite woman that comes and begins to cry out to him. He really can't get away from people's demands. And what is she asking for? Her daughter is demon-possessed. And she wants Jesus to help her in that. What does Jesus say at first? Nothing. Nothing. But she is hollering out and hollering out, and that bugs the disciples. What do they want Jesus to do? Stop her. Send her away. I don't really know if they meant just order her to leave, or if they meant give her what she wants so she leaves. But they don't want her continuing to bug them, you know, crying out after them. And so he answers them and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, what is that saying? And he was going to the Jews. So God didn't like the Gentiles? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's me. Why was, why was Jesus only going to the Jews? That's where he was going first. Yeah. It was God's plan to do this in an organized, orderly manner. Uh, he had prepared the Jews in a special way throughout the Old Testament period for them to be the first to receive the Messiah, and from there the gospel would spread to the Gentiles. So, Jesus is not going to heal this daughter. 
Uh, but she says, Lord, help me. She comes and begins to bow down and says, Lord, help me. And he said, well, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's now, an insult. That is an insult. But, but now, you can understand that in the physical realm. Would you take bread out of the mouth of your kids and give it to the dogs? No. Your kids are worth more than the dogs. I mean, that just would not be right. What does Jesus mean by that? What's the children's bread? Him. His works. Yeah. Like this healing the demon-possessed daughter, for example. And what are the children? Jesus. And the dogs? Ouch. Now... I want you to think about what would have happened, or what could have happened, had Jesus not said these things. What if Jesus had just done with this Gentile woman like he'd have done with the Jews, and he'd have just said, okay, may your daughter be healed? What do you suppose would have happened next? Swarms of Gentiles? Yes, that's what I'm imagining. Why wouldn't things have happened in Gentile territory? Is you know, much as they would in Jewish territory, there were surely people with ailments in Tyre and Sidon that would have dearly loved to have had Jesus, you know, heal them. This could have been the start of some big healing campaign among the Gentiles. But Jesus does not intend that to be the case because that wasn't God's plan. He was. It was not yet time for the dogs to receive the blessing. So that is somewhat of an insult. I think I would have felt hurt had Jesus said that to me. But what does she do? She's okay with the dog part. <laughs> yeah. She's humble enough to accept her dog role. <laughs> but what does she ask for? Don't the dogs get to eat the crumbs? What did she mean? What were the crumbs? Just a little bit of his power. Exactly! You know, she doesn't need the bread. Just a crumb of Jesus' power would be adequate to heal her daughter. You know, don't the dogs at least get the scraps? That's all she I need. She was quick. She was quick. Uh, that is remarkable. She's a quick-witted woman. She's humble. But I don't think either of those are the most amazing things about what she, what she said. What was so amazing about what she said? She didn't get offended. And that too. That. But that's not what I'm thinking about. But you're right. She understood how great his power was. Yes. So even a crumb would be enough. Yes. Who would have thought that it didn't even take Jesus' bread to heal a demon-possessed daughter? Cruelly demon-possessed, she says. I don't know what the demon was doing to her daughter, but apparently he was a malicious demon. That just a crumb would be enough. <clears throat> That's how much, you know, how, how, how immense she saw Jesus' power as being. Well, when, Jesus, when she says that, Jesus said, your faith is great. It shall be done to you as you wish. 
But now he sends her away without thinking that the Gentiles were getting the bread. She just got a scrap, you know, for the benefit of her demon-possessed daughter. She's not going to go tell her friends and neighbors, you know, Jesus is starting a big healing campaign. Come out and watch. Yeah, but they're going to see the daughters healed. Yeah. I don't understand why that wouldn't start a healing campaign. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be obvious, and... Yeah. Well... She's not like nearly as obvious as if the woman got on the phone with all of her buddies and said, you know, go to Jesus. I mean, it's not going to create quite as much whatever, I would say. I don't know. Do we read of any other healings among the Gentiles? Well, I'm not sure I would say absolutely not I mean what about for example uh, the uh, the servant there Malchus I guess he was the high priest servant though he's probably a Jew I don't know can we can we think of another centurion's daughter. that's true the centurion's daughter he probably wouldn't have been so yeah there were an occasional one but in some of in like in that case the centurion was in the Jewish territory now, there's a debate about this. Um, it, starting in 29, there are a lot of people who think that he's still in Gentile territory and that these are parallel things for the Gentiles like he was doing for the Jews. I do not agree with that. I do not think that's the best explanation of this. But that is a very common interpretation among the commentators. I think that almost contradicts what's said in this section, and I think there's no reason to say that. Well, but that is a very common his, view. And it says he's by the Sea of Galilee. Yes. But of course it depends on which side of the sea he was on. See, that's that's what people are thinking. There's a couple of little things that they point to for that, but I think it's they not... They glorify the God of Israel. That's one of them, yes. That's one, one big thing they point to. And they would say that, that the feeding of the 4,032 and following, that's kind of the Gentile feeding parallel to the Jewish feeding. Which makes a nice, neat package, but it's true. <laughs> so I disagree with that, but that, that would be, you know, a lot of people would answer with that. I still, I still find this a bit surprising, that Jesus talked to her that way. I don't have a great answer other than he's making clear it's not time for the dogs to receive the miracles. All right, comments or questions? Maybe she's used to being treated like that. Since Especially by the Jews. Yeah, since she didn't take offense, so maybe it wasn't as, I mean, it was offensive, but it wasn't as shocking. At least they they had two different words for dog, and one of them was for the like the, you know, stray dog. The, you know, the, yeah, I mean, just like the dog that they had a lot of dogs that would just kind of rummage around, you know, kind of like uh, coyotes or wolves or you know, just kind of stray homeless, you know. And this was not that. This was the word for a pet dog. <laughs> so, at least he doesn't call her. <laughs> You are my pet. 
was probably just because the context of what he was saying was taking the children's bread and doing it to That's right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And he's using that as an analogy like it, at home, you wouldn't take the bread right. from your children to give it to the pet. But she says, yeah, but the pet gets the scraps. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't Tyre and Sidon destroyed at this point? So is this just like the region around them? The answer is no. They were not totally destroyed at this point. That was a gradual process. They were much lesser than they were. But like in Acts 21 and verse uh, uh, 3, Paul's ship lands at Tyre, and uh, he spends some time with the brethren at Tyre. And I am thinking that in Acts 27, uh, but no. Yeah, they put in at Sidon in Acts 27.3. So those were still towns, but not nearly like they had been. Other comments or questions? All right, then 29 to 39. You said 29 to 39? I did. Okay. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Okay. So, Jesus... Uh is there by the Sea of Galilee, I assume on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, what happens? Well, back up a second. Why? Okay, I thought we were always talking about him going from one side to the other of the Sea of Galilee. Yes. So, and one side of that is not... Well, he doesn't go to the other side often. He did that, for example, I mean the other side, other side. You mean uh, He did that like side. in chapter 5. Yes, I mean the east side. He did that in chapter 5 when he healed that, uh, the guy possessed Crazy. by legion. Right. I said okay. chapter 5. This is chapter 8 in Matthew. I'm chapter 5 in Mark. Teaching Mark after this. Uh, but yeah, and uh, that's where he told the ex-demoniac, to tell the people in the city what great things the Lord had done for him. Right. Quite different than what he would say in a Jewish area where he was in danger of becoming too popular. You know, he wasn't in no danger of that in that area where they had asked him to leave because he destroyed their pigs. And that so that was a Gentile area. area. Yes. Okay. 
probably even you can see that from the fact they were herding pigs. Right. You know. But yeah. So now we're assuming he's back on the west side. Right. Right. Or the north side or the south side, but not that, you know, far east side. Right. Okay. That's my assumption. Anyhow, what does Jesus do in 30 and 31? Draws a crowd. A crowd of? People. Sick people. Yeah, a crowd of handicapped people. You know, he, he always draws the people who have various uh, ailments, and he heals them all. And the crowd's amazed because all the people who couldn't do certain things leave doing the things they couldn't do in the cave. And they glorify <laughs> the God of Israel, which, of course, is the right thing to do. They recognize that God is the power behind this. And then Jesus feels compassion because the multitude's been with him for three days. They have nothing to eat. And he doesn't want this to send them away hungry. And so the disciples are like, well, what can we do? You know, we don't have enough food, you know, for a crowd like this. And Jesus said, what do you have and what did they have? Small fish. Now, do you remember the earlier feeding? How many they had? Five loaves and two fish. This is seven loaves and a few fish. Slightly more resources than they had to start with the previous time, but not nearly enough to put a dent in the appetites of all these people who haven't eaten in three days, evidently. And he directs the people to sit on the ground and he starts giving the sandwiches to the disciples to distribute among the people, and they just keep giving until they all ate and were satisfied. And what did they, how much did they pick up of the broken pieces? Seven large baskets full. Yes. Now, notice large baskets. That is a translation of one word. There is, there are, there's more than one word for basket in, in you know, Greek. That probably is a reflection of the fact they use baskets more than we did. You know, if it's something that's important in your culture, you have more than one word for it. You know, what's important in our culture? Automobiles. How many words do we have for automobiles? You mean like cars, trucks, vehicles? Well, then like SUVs and pickups and sports cars and compacts and full sides and crossovers and minivans and so forth and so on. They're all cars! But they aren't all cars to us. And they tell me, I think the Eskimos are supposed to have a bunch of different words for snow, aren't they? Depending on the kind of snow or something. Uh, and I bet if it snowed every day of your life, you'd have different words for snow too. Uh, but, but, so they had different words for baskets. And one of them meant a really large, like, big basket. And one of them meant more like a basket you'd normally carry in your hand. These two stories are in Matthew and Mark, and they're both then referred to again in another incident where Jesus said, do you remember when I when you picked up the, how many baskets you picked up from the 5,000 or the 4,000? And in every one of those cases, the words are consistent. It's the smaller baskets, when they had 12 of them for the feeding of the 5,000, and it's the larger baskets, the hampers, <laughs> when they had the seven baskets with the feeding of the 4,000. Because there were two different baskets that were used. Now, that's another thing, I think irrationally, that people point to, well, this must be in a Gentile area, because I use a different word for basket. 
No, they had, they were using bigger baskets for the leftovers there for whatever reason. It must have been Lent. They didn't eat as much fish or, they, yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah. So probably the seven baskets were actually more leftovers than 12. I wouldn't debate that, but probably so. But in the case of the feeding of 5,000 with the 12 baskets, you have a basket for every disciple. Right. In this case, you have a basket for every... Fish. Loaf. Oh, oh loaf. Yeah, <laughs> loaf. <laughs> Close. Well, a few fish. I don't know how many. A better analogy would be like our different words for pots. Like you have a saucepan or That's a stock pot. That's what I thought of bowls, you know. Right. So you have any <laughs> I thought my analogy was very good, <laughs> thank you very much. It's more related to food. <laughs> That's right. And size. Right. Or spoons. So. Like teaspoons and mixing spoons. Anyway. Well, whatever. <laughs> Don't you see what I mean? What is I'm not into kitchen now? items. I'm into vehicular apparatus. Well, not much. <laughs> I have several different items. True. I've gone through quite a few in my uh, <laughs> yeah, short years of my life. So, uh, but just impressive, Jesus can do this. Comments and questions. So why did they not think of the 5,000 and that he did this before? That's a very good question. That was my question. And that's especially going to be true later on when they panic because of not having food. And Jesus is going to say, I've done this twice already, and you still are worried about not having food. So we're going to have even more occasion to ask that question then. I think there's a good answer to that question. What's the good answer? They're senile. No. What would you say, David? They're senile. It's <laughs> making a point. That? It's just a good way to make a lesson, teach a lesson. No. I think we do exactly the same thing. It's not a good answer. <laughs> what, what happens when we have seen all that Jesus has done in the Bible and we are in some sort of a crisis and we turn to the Lord and he resolves it? And then when we get into a crisis again, what do we do? Panic! What are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to do. It's going to be terrible. Didn't Jesus just, didn't God just handle that, you know, two years ago in your life and over and over again in the Bible? And what do we, we throw up our hands in despair. I mean, do you look at the life of Asa? Remember how when Ziba the Ethiopian came against him with his a million man army, he turned to God. He said, you're the only one that can help in the battle between the strong and those without strength, so help us. And God did. They won the victory. And then some years later, when Basha, the king of Israel, started fortifying Ramah, the border city, as if he was going to attack Jerusalem, instead of turning to the Lord, what did Asa do? Made a treaty with Ben-Hadad up in Syria to attack him from the north, so he'd have to withdraw and meet the attack. Now, how do you do that? Why wouldn't you trust the Lord? If the Lord's given you the victory over the million-man army... Why wouldn't he give you the victory over Basha for crying out loud? But I think it's what we do. I think we tend to doubt God when a new crisis comes along. And I think that is typical of the disciples. I realize this is a little more, you know, weird because it's like the very same thing. You know, very same situation. But in general, they do this all the time. Every new, you know, crisis of any different sort, they panic. You know, what are we going to do now? You know, 
you, you, we're going to perish, you know, or whatever. Um, so I, I just think it's human nature to not, not think about the Lord handling the problem when we face another problem. If it wasn't, why do we keep not turning to the Lord in those situations? At least that's my problem in my life. I think that was a good question. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to <laughs> develop my Asa? sermon. Do I? Where do you read about Asa? Uh, that would be Second Chronicles 14, 15, and 16. Chapters 14? Yes. 15, 14 is with Zira and 16 <laughs> is with Basha. That's great. I can give you a verse of what you don't need. All right. Other comments or questions? That kind of makes sense. Like, I can see that. And people's lives, you know, my life today, but this it just seems, seems different. Like <laughs> <laughs> it always seems different on the other person. Well, how do you forget that? Like, well, remember, we read these in, in you know consecutive chapters, right? And so you it's know, two chapters. Ago. Yeah, that was no, just last week for us. <laughs> two years ago, or whatever. Surely you'd remember he fell. Surely you'd remember how he delivered you from the crisis two years ago, wouldn't you, when you <laughs> face a new one? But this is such the same. It's so much... Uh, I don't I know that we sense. even when it's almost exactly the same. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, I just think we do the same thing. I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when, you know, you get laid off and you're scared in the economy you won't get a job and then you do and you're so thankful to God and then two years later you get laid off again. You tell me that all Christians are going to immediately say, oh, I, I know I can trust the Lord, he'll take care of it. No, that's or, a better enough. Or, or you get cancer and you pray and it's cured and then two years later it comes back and you're like, oh no, what are we going to do now? I don't know. I think we're just alike, just like they are. That's my that's my view. All right, sixteen one to four. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and, and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, "When it is evening, you say." It will be fair. It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and the sign will not be given and accept the sign of Jonah, and he left him and went away. Who comes up to Jesus? Pharisees and Sadducees. And what do you think about the Pharisees and Sadducees being together testing Jesus? <laughs> you know, hostility like necessity makes strange bedfellows. <clears throat> because these guys would naturally be poles apart. Uh, but they set aside their mutual dislike long enough to attack a common foe, Jesus. 
Jesus is amazing. He reconciles people to God, but he also reconciles his enemies to each other to oppose him. Uh, so that's kind of funny. What are they? What are they uh, asking from Jesus? A sign from heaven. Now, what do you think about that? Speaking of poor memories, he's already given. I mean, you know, think about all the different things Jesus has done. You know, seeing is not believing in this case, is it? I mean, you know, you wonder, what could Jesus have done that would have satisfied them if the things he's already done haven't? And it's kind of ironic that they ask him for a sign from heaven. After all, what is the preeminent sign from heaven? Jesus himself. He is the very side from heaven standing right there in front of them and they want a side from heaven. Now there's a textual question about verses 2 and 3. It may or may not be original here in Matthew. It is in Mark either way. So it's not a big deal. If it is original here Jesus is saying well you show so much perception even about weather things. You know from the way the sky looks and whatever else, what the weather's going to be. But you don't seem to be able to know from the prophecies and the promises and so forth and, and even the things I'm doing, you can't recognize the coming of the Messianic Kingdom right here. You know, and so with, with this kind of blindness and hard-heartedness Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah. And what was the sign of Jonah? Yes, just as Jonah was buried three night, three days and nights in the sea and raised, Jesus would be, be buried three days and three nights in the earth and be raised. Comments and questions? So some Pharisees just came and talked to him a couple of chapters ago asking the same thing. Yes, that's right, back in chapter 12. I guess they're different Pharisees. 12, uh, 38. Well, you know, they didn't get his answer the first time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it may have been different Pharisees and plenty of Pharisees. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me if some of the same guys are asking him again. I mean, I think what they're really wanting is to try to discredit him with the people. I'm not sure they think he will give them the sign, and I really don't think they wanted him to give them that sign. Mm -hmm. I think they just want to ask for something that it didn't try to make it look like Jesus can't do it. So it looks like he's not really that powerful after all. I think that's their goal. So I can see them asking multiple times even the same Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And Jesus does seem to know them. <laughs> so are you saying that you think that they're going to ask for, you know, if he says, okay, I'll give you a sign, then they're going to try to come up with a really bizarre sign that they think he can't do? Is that what you're trying to say? I, I think this sign from heaven business is probably that. I don't know exactly what they have in mind, but I guess the signs Jesus has been have been giving them has not been a sign from heaven. We want a sign from heaven. <laughs> I don't know if they want you know lightning to strike, you know, or what. But, but I mean, you know, they're just going to ask for something, you know, that they think, well, if he can't do this, then we'll be able. Ah, we asked him for a sign from heaven. He can't give us a sign from heaven. And if he'd have done that, then there'd have been something else. I mean, I do not think their unbelief has anything to do with a scarcity of evidence. 
There have been plenty of evidence. So I don't think adding more evidence is going to change them at all. I mean, when Jesus raised from the dead, did it change them? No. You know, so. Other thoughts? Five to twelve. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discuss, to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember, remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? For the seven loaves, the four thousand, how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is not one of the disciples' better moments. <laughs> you know, they forgot to bring bread. Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they think what? He's worried about the bread that we forgot. <laughs> wow. They are have a one-track mind, don't but they? But they were getting smarter in the fact that when Jesus said something, it's usually not what he says exactly what... <gasps> He's referring to. <laughs> well, they understood enough to know that he really wasn't talking about leaven. Okay. Right. So he's, he, he must be talking about the bread that we forgot <laughs> rather than the actual Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees. And the <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they're making a step by step uh, progress, yeah. but uh, not very fast. Yeah. So, um. They came to the other side of the sea this mm -hmm. time, so now we're okay. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I, mean, I think they may very well be here on the east side of the sea, but this is not some place he's doing miracles. So now they're right going now. to the east side. I, I think it's possible. The whole question may come down to where he was transfigured, and that's a debatable issue. <laughs> I'm not competent to, so I'm not sure anybody knows, but people think they do. On the Mount of Transfiguration? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's not hard. Yeah, good point. It's <laughs> funny that they called it that before he went there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, Well, I guess, uh, you know, maybe he knew that place That's he ought to go for that. That's why he went there. Yeah, yeah. Right. He was going to be transfigured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he went to the Mount of Healing to heal all the yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, anyhow, um, you know, Jesus means beware of this bad attitude, this, this corrupting influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees, like this skepticism that always wants another sign and never is convinced by what they've already seen. That's what he means. That's what he's talking about. But they're thinking, no bread, no bread. What? We didn't bring bread. You know, they're panic-stricken because they're not going to have anything to eat. And Jesus reminds them. How much bread they had left over the other time. So why don't you understand that I wasn't talking to you about bread? <laughs> I was talking to you about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then it dawned on them, 
Oh, he doesn't mean the leaven of bread. He means the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, which is what he'd said to begin with. You know, they're teaching. Uh, so, um, but I think this is even more ridiculous that they're still worried about food shortage. And I also think that we need to think about this. There is a greater uh, threat to the disciples' welfare than a lack of physical provisions. Jesus is focused on what really threatens them. They're focused on their food. You know, they're thinking on too carnal a level. It doesn't matter if they brought bread with them. They can go without bread. But what really is worrisome is that they'll adopt the spirit of the religious leaders around them. That's what Jesus is thinking about. It's pretty common in the Gospels for Jesus to be thinking about a much deeper, more serious thing and the people to still be thinking on a very superficial daily life level. You know, how much do we think about food as opposed to thinking about the Lord is our food? I mean, sometimes we get fixated on just these, you know, everyday needs and deficiencies and, you know, issues, and we don't really think about what matters. All right, come into questions. What's the last word in verse 10? Well, I have up. Well, mine says, how many large baskets you took up? Took up is one word. <laughs> took up? <laughs> like pick up? That's a typo. Took up. Yeah, he also has a typo in Revelation. T O O K U P. What well, version do you have? It's the old New American Standard. <laughs> ah, in the new New American Standard, it is pick or picked space up. And this is took up. <laughs> but that, I imagine, is the printing and not the New American Standard translation itself. Sometimes the printing is just, they'll make a mistake in the printing. So you might have a different, like, printing by a different company of the original New American Standard, and it might have it right. Yeah. It's I think kind of Jesus funny. really irritated here. You think he was? Don't you? Well, it would be exasperating. I don't know how irritated he is as opposed to how he's just, you know, please, you know, get something here. I don't know. It's hard to know his tone. He put up with a lot. Man, they're slow. And and it's not like just once or twice. They just keep missing it. The stupid bread just keeps coming out. Yeah. And various other things. It's comforting, though. It means Jesus is willing to put up with uh, slow people. Well, how about 13 to 20? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they, say, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, uh, and others Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Um, so <clears throat> this is interesting. They're in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which would be a Gentile area. You know, so so that may well be they've been on the east side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's interesting he asked them that question. What do other people say about me, and what was their report? John the Baptist, and Elijah, and Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then what's Jesus' follow-up question? What do you think? Now, I think he asked it that way for them to start thinking independently of the people. They need to think about what they see in Jesus in contrast to what everybody else thinks about it. Now, what if somebody thought you were John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Would that be cool? Besides the fact they're already dead and, you know, things like that. I mean, that would be a high compliment for most people. That'd be about like somebody saying, well, I think you're George Washington, or I think you're Abraham Lincoln, or somebody like that. You know, he, you know, they, they, they would be honoring most people with this. But the truth is, this is a put-down for Jesus. When Jesus says... Who do you think? Who speaks up? <laughs> Peter, again. And what does he say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yeah. Well, that's a much better answer than what the crowds were giving. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of the living God. That's a very good answer. Now, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter says you're the Christ, and Jesus praises Peter. Now, there's just a number of things that you see in this. For example, he calls, Peter calls Jesus the son of the living God. And Jesus calls Peter the son of like Jonah. Jonah, because Bar Jonah means son of Jonah. So, you know, they, they each uh, speak of the uh, uh, ancestry of the other <laughs> um, in a positive way. Peter says in 16, You are the Christ. Jesus says in 18, you are Peter. You are Peter. You told me who I am. I'll tell you who you are. There's a correspondence in these things. Now, what Peter said, where did he get that? From God the Father? Yeah. Now, did God whisper that in Peter's ear or something? No. I don't think so. I think God revealed this through the evidence that was available. 
through his works, through his character, through the fulfilled prophecies, etc. I don't think he's saying you got a special note from God, you know, just handed to you with the right answer, but you've seen the evidence that God's given. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but it looks to me like from the whole context that's a more reasonable, you know, explanation. Now, when when Jesus says this to Peter, was this giving Peter some special elevation above the other apostles? No, he was responding to the one that answered. Exactly. If he was giving special priority to Peter, like Peter was the head, the others did never seem to know about it because they always argue about who the greatest will be. If Jesus had already said it would be Peter, there wouldn't be a whole lot of reason for them to argue. Are you asking just because when he said, blessed are you? Because the Catholic Church would say this passage shows that Peter is the lead apostle. Okay. They would say Peter was the first pope, and this would be one of their passages to prove it. Because it says, I'll build my church on this rock? Yes, and just because yeah, of the things the he the says in singling out Peter. Power. Yeah, blessed are you, and really all the things he says. Are, are in that. Now, what about this upon this rock business? I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is a very debated thing. Do you know what Peter means? Rock. rock. A rock. You're a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. A lot of people think that means I'll build, build it on you. <laughs> Absolutely. You're a rock, and on this rock, that is you, I will build my church. I don't think that's the best explanation of the passage, however. What was the rock he was building the church on? I think so. I think he's making a play on the word Peter. You're a rock, but now what if I want to say you're a rock? And then I wanted to say that you were the one I build the church on. I wouldn't say you're a rock and upon this rock. I'd say you're a rock and upon you I will build my church. That would seem like a much more reasonable way to say that. I think he says you're a rock and upon this rock, what rock? That I am the Christ, the son of the living God. On the basis of that truth, I will build my church. Say that again. <laughs> the rock if he were saying he was building it on Peter, he'd say, on you. What he did say is, you are a rock, Peter. And upon this, you are a rock, but upon this rock, that is, Verse 16. what you just said. I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, you're a rock. But upon this rock, I will build my church. I think he's making a play, definitely, on the word Peter. I don't think we can ignore that. He definitely is. After all, who gave him the name Peter? Jesus. That was the nickname Peter gave him because he was making him into a rock. He says, so you're a rock, and upon this rock, what you just confessed, I'll build my church. I would not be dogmatic about that, but I think that is a much stronger explanation of the passage. And I would also cite the fact that over and over again throughout the Bible, God is called a rock. 
You've got all kinds of passages for that. And so, and, and we know that Jesus was the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 and various other passages. So when you fit all the other evidence together with the most logical explanation of this passage, I think he's saying, upon this rock, that is what you just confessed. That is the solid foundation for Jesus to build his people. Again, I'm aware of the fact most of the commentators, a lot of them these days would not agree with that, even some brethren would not agree with that. But I think when you fit all the evidence together, that is a, a better and more coherent explanation. Thoughts and comments about that point? Isn't there a passage that says that the apostles are, the apostles and prophets are a foundation? Ephesians 2.20 with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Okay. It really depends on the figure you're using, you know, how you look at it all. In some passages, Jesus is the foundation. Okay. But in that passage, Jesus the is the cornerstone, and they are the rest of the foundation. Right. So regardless of how you interpret it, like, you understand that obviously this is all built on Jesus, and, you know, there's a role that the apostles and prophets played in that, but... Yes. Brethren who would take this as referring to Peter would not try to give some, you know, priority to Peter over Jesus or something So like why that. would they refer it to Peter? Because of the, the play on the but I mean, what would be their point with that? Well, just that that's what he's saying. That's what he said. Like they, they'd argue that's what he said. On, like, Peter's foundational We've made some mm, questionable arguments in the past about that. I mean, people have really made a big deal about the gender because the word Peter is masculine gender and this rock is feminine gender and some things like that that probably are not overly strong arguments. <laughs> and so sometimes when, when somebody defends the truth with a weaker argument, somebody disproves the weaker argument and thinks they've overthrown the truth. I don't think that's one of the better arguments. Yeah, there may be something to it, but it doesn't seem very strong grammatically. I think the much better argument is to look at the context and see what he's saying in the context and see how these concepts are used in other passages. I think when you put all that evidence together, while it may not matter a whole lot if a brother takes the wrong position about this, the Catholics misuse it. But, but still, I think the correct explanation is Jesus was building his people on the solid foundation that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation in this passage that we are built onto. So if, according to the Catholics, if this verse proves that Peter was the first pope, what does verse 23 prove? <laughs> uh, well, popes make mistakes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It, you have to be selective with the evidence, or at least it helps a lot. <laughs> and doesn't he say to all of the apostles at some point, verse 19? Close. He doesn't say, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. But he does say what you have found. Yes, he does. Well, or at least to somebody. There's a question as to who it would be, but it's Matthew 18, 18. We'll look at that when we get there. Okay. Um, I do think, although I may not get to this, that he may be giving the keys to Peter in a special sense. I wouldn't deny that Peter was the one who opened the door. Is that because of Acts 2? Mm -hmm. Acts 2 and Acts 10 with the Gentiles also. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought at first. Peter did actually, he was the one God chose to be the door opener 
in both cases. So I, I, I don't have a particular problem with that. I don't have a problem with saying Peter often took the lead. I think he did. I mean, <laughs> he was kind of the one who was always talking. But, you know, on the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter stood up with the eleven. He took the lead. Now, you know, when you look at the book of Acts, for example, Peter takes the lead in the first half, Paul takes the lead in the second half. You know, Peter kind of is the leader among the Jews and Paul among the Gentiles. You know, so you kind of have point-counterpoint. But, but Peter having some leadership, I have no problem with. Peter being singled out exclusively as the foundation. I don't see that. I don't think... If if we wanted to say the apostles and prophets as a whole were the foundation and Jesus the cornerstone, yeah, that's Ephesians 2.20. Or the 12 foundation stones of New Jerusalem are the apostles in Revelation 21.14. Now, I think even then, when we say that the apostles, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of God's people, he really is referring to them because of their teaching. It's what they taught that ended up being the foundational documents for God's people. So I don't think even then he was so much thinking about their person as their role. A lot of things to think about in this. And Jesus says a lot of things that make us stop and look at it and think about it. This was a very profound thing to say. I mean, we're just kind of, you know, plodding our way through. There's a lot more stuff to talk about with this. But comments and questions through uh, the first uh, line or so of 18. I was still trying to figure out how a Christian would think Peter was the rock. It seems like that just puts too much emphasis on Peter. That elevates. I would agree, but they would just say it because they think that's what the passage is saying. But it just seems like that would contradict other passages. Mm. No? Yeah. I mean, since I don't hold the view, I really do a terrible job of defending things that I don't believe. But I know some good brethren who do take that view. So I'm not, not downing them. But when I don't take the view, it never sounds very good to me. <laughs> but in practicality, it doesn't. I don't think any of the brethren I know that have taken it have tried to give any special will to Peter. It may weaken their argument against Catholicism in some senses. Besides the words being feminine and masculine, is is it one a small stone and then one a large rock? Mm, yeah, perhaps. I mean, I, I think there's something to that, but that's probably also been a little exaggerated. Uh, both of those arguments seem to be, okay, yes, perhaps, but you can't make that as a hard and fast distinction. That's what I've read. So, that, yeah, that might be true in some passages but, or in some contexts, but probably isn't the strongest argument to use. And I'm not a good one to judge those arguments, obviously, because I don't want to work for real, so I can just report what I've read. All right, well, I probably should stop here. Go ahead. It just seems so contradictory that if he's make, pointing out separating Peter and holding him to a certain position to turn around in 23 and everything be the opposite. Yeah. Right. He says, you're Peter and upon this rock I'm going to build my church and, and then turn around and say, you're the stumbling block, you're Satan, you're... <laughs> 
Yes, and I believe he does make... You're the stumbling rock. I, I believe you can go down and you can point to the contrast right down the line. There's several contrasts between these two passages. We'll do that when we get to 23. So yes, you're right about that. You know, that would certainly seem to uh, kind of uh, undermine that view of Peter uh, in 17 and 18. Good point. So in both cases, it's just because he spoke out. And I think it is. Yes, I think it is. One time he said a good thing, and then he said a bad thing. Yes, he's very Peter-esque. <laughs> but it gives me hope, because I sometimes see stupid things, too. Right. <laughs> so I have sometimes taken great comfort in the fact that the Lord was still able to make something out of Peter. <laughs> That's right. All right, very good, ladies good. and gentlemen. Thank you for your...